Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your mansplainer, Michael Ian Black. And uh, I tell you, the wife and I there, we've been watching Fargo, you know, we've been catching up on Fargo. We never seen it before. And uh, we were watching season one and we finished that and then we're on to season two. That's a lot more compelling than Jude the Obscure. I'll tell you. I mean, we were binging Fargo. We didn't really binge Drew the Obscure. I mean, I've been at it for months now, don't you think? And, uh, you know, making slow progress. <sighs> a lot of good performances in that Fargo. Billy Bob Thornton, first season, fabulous. Colin Hanks, terrific. Adam Goldberg. I'm just listing the people whose names I know. But all of whom were great, by the way. There's, but there's so many other performances of people. Oh, Martin Freeman, whose names I don't know, including the woman who plays Molly Salverson. She's terrific. They're all terrific. You know, ultimately, Fargo, I think, at least season one, which is all that I've seen, is about what is the nature of evil in the world. And we've dealt with not quite that question here in Jude the Obscure, but questions about faith, certainly, questions about meaning, certainly, questions about goodness and ethics and trying to do the right thing, certainly, all of it kind of embodied by Jude. Well, not all of it, but most of it embodied by Jude, these questions, this searching, this aching, this longing for some sort of meaning, some sort of understanding of the world. And that's a that's just a common theme in, in Coen Brothers movies in general, just trying to understand the nature of the world. And in both cases, the Coen Brothers and Thomas Hardy, their answers are somewhat bleak. And Fargo, the TV show, is kind of a pastiche 
a lovely pastiche of all the Fargo movies. I mean, all the uh, Coen Brothers movies sort of sewn into one elaborate patchwork quilt. And the themes just keep coming up again and again and again. Not so much about the nature of love, except as a redemptive force and the kind of quiet love that will sustain people through the years. In the Coen brothers, uh, it's primarily male protagonists and the love of a good woman, how sustaining that can be for a man. The, the reverse is also true, but in the Coen brothers universe, it's predominantly male. And Jude is looking for that. Jude is looking for the love, really not even of a good woman, because he married a bad woman, and he's in love with a kind of, jeez, uh, what do you call her? I mean, last night, my son was distinguishing between lawful evil, neutral evil, and chaotic evil, and then lawful good, neutral good, and chaotic good. And uh, I think Sue Bridehead is somewhere around, I think she's chaotic good more or less, hovering right between chaotic good and chaotic evil. Arabella is just chaotic evil. And Jude is trying to be lawful good, but is failing. And when we last left Jude and Sue, they were basically saying goodbye to Jude's Aunt Drusilla, who has made a miraculous recovery from her deathbed and is now just up and about and spry and hopping around like a little bunny. And Jude has seen Sue off at the train station and and he said, can I see you again at Melchester? She says, no, I don't think so. No. And he's like, yeah, okay, goodbye, goodbye. And then they're doing this dance that they do where they pretend that they're never going to see each other again. And then they do. This is the dance of Sue and Jude. And so he has resolved not to go. And he says, she's right. I won't go. So he's still at his aunt's. He passed the evening and following days in mortifying by every possible means his wish to see her, nearly starving himself in attempts to extinguish by fasting his passionate tendency to love her. He read sermons on discipline and hunted up passages in church history that treated of the ascetics of the second century. Before he had returned from Mary Green to Melchester, Melchester, there arrived a letter from Arabella. The sight of it revived a stronger feeling of self-condemnation for his brief return to her society than for his attachment to Sue. So he's pissed at himself for sleeping with her, as he should be. Who knows what she has? You know what I mean? I mean, if ever there was a person who had genital herpes and didn't tell anybody, it's Arabella. The letter, he perceived, bore a London postmark instead of the Christminster one. Arabella informed him that a few days after their parting in the morning at Christminster, she had been surprised by an affectionate letter from her Australian husband, formerly manager of the hotel in Sydney. He had come to England on purpose to find her, and had taken a free, fully licensed public in Lambeth, where he wished her to join him in conducting the business, which was likely to be a very thriving one, the house being situated in an excellent, densely populated gin-drinking neighborhood and already doing a trade of 200 pounds a month, which could be easily doubled. As he had said that he loved her very much still and implored her to tell him where she was, and as they had only parted in a slight tiff, and as her engagement in Christmas 
Westminster was only temporary. She had just gone to join him as he urged. Well, that's good. She could not help feeling that she belonged to him more than to Jude, since she had properly married him and had lived with him much longer than with her first husband. In thus wishing Jude goodbye, she bore him no ill will and trusted he would not turn upon her, a weak woman, and inform against her and bring her to ruin now that she had a chance of improving her circumstances and leading a genteel life. End of chapter 9. Well, so I think, I think Thomas Hardy's given us a little, a little, uh, oh, I don't even know what the word is. He's lying to us. She's going to, things don't work out like that for Arabella. Things are going to go bad for Arabella in one way or another, and she is going to return to Jude. We have not seen the last of Arabella. There's just no way. There's no way. Thomas Hardy brings her back to Australia. They spend one night together and then she goes to live with her Australian husband where he's got a public house and they put shrimp on the bobby and all is well with the world. Jude, meanwhile, is purging, fasting, trying to milk out his passion for Sue by starving himself to death. Now, look, I don't know. I don't know who's listening, but anorexia is never going to be the solution to your problems. For me, it might be because I have a late night pretzel habit that is proving very difficult to, to, to break. Uh, but for you, all of you healthy eating listeners, d- don't do that. If you've got a problem, starvation is not the solution. Now, bulimia might be because that way you get to eat eat the stuff, and then you just throw it up. Bad for your teeth, but hey, keeps the weight off. Chapter 10. Jude returned to Melchester, which had the questionable recommendation of being only a dozen and a half miles from his Sue's now permanent residence. At first, he felt that this nearness was a distinct reason for not going southward at all, but Christminster was too sad a place to bear, while the proximity of Shaston to Melchester might afford him the glory of worsting the enemy in a close engagement, such as was deliberately sought by the priests and virgins of the early church, who, disdaining the ignominious, ignominious flight from temptation, became even chamber partners with impunity." Jude did not pause to remember that, in the laconic words of the historian, quote, insulted nature sometimes vindicated her rights in such such circumstances. So again, we're dealing with lies to the self. I don't know what, there's probably a term for that. I don't know what the term is. You know, there's like lies of omission. There's probably like a term for lies to the self, which Jude has been engaged in for a very long time regarding Sue Bridehead. And this is also a common theme in Coen Brothers movies. This idea that um, you tell yourself one small lie and then it snowballs into a colossal problem, generally involving chainsaws or blood spattering in some sort or another. I would like it if there was more blood spattering here in Jude the Obscure. So far, we've had none. But I think the result is the same, which is a ruin of a life 
Lives are ruined when we lie to ourselves. When we do not keep our own faith, things just fall apart. So Jude is committing this lie, lying to himself and saying, well, I'm going to go to where Sue is six and a half miles away from her. And it'll be good because I'm going to beat her at her own game. I'm going to best my enemy by being in proximity to her and, and, and we'll fight at close quarters and it'll be messy and it'll be savage. But in the end, I will come out victorious. Now, I don't even know what the nature of this fight is, whether the fight is with Sue herself or with Jude's own temptations. Probably a little of both, where he just in, in, in being close to her, he feels like he can somehow ride the tiger of his own passions and tame it. But you can't tame that tiger, guys. The tiger will eat you in the end. Siegfried and Roy learned that lesson the hard way. Destroyed their magic career. He now returned with feverish desperation to his study for the priesthood in the recognition that the single-mindedness of his aims and his fidelity to the cause had been more than questionable of late. Yeah, a little bit questionable, Jude, because you haven't done anything to pursue it. You've been drinking, and you've been cavorting, and you've been pining. You have not been studying for the priesthood. His passion for Sue troubled his soul. Yet his lawful abandonment to the society of Arabella for 12 hours seemed instinctively a worse thing, even though she had not told him of her Sydney husband till afterwards. He had, he verily believed, overcome all tendency to fly to liquor, which indeed he had never done from taste, but merely as an escape from intolerable misery of mind. That's what I do with pretzels. I just, I go to them for escape. It's not that I like the taste, although they are very good. I do like the taste, but I'm just trying to escape, you know, just escape through pretzels. Don't you know? Yet he perceived with despondency that taken all round, he was a man of too many passions to make a good clergyman. The utmost he could hope for was that in a life of constant internal warfare between flesh and spirit, the former might not always be victorious. Yeah, ride that tiger, Jude. Do you want to see a magic trick? We will be back on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, everybody. We were just discussing Jude's passions, and uh, let's get back to it. As a hobby auxiliary to his readings in divinity, he developed his slight skill in church music and thorough bass. I don't know what thorough bass is. I guess an instrument till he could join in part singing from no, uh, no, or maybe he sang bass till he could join in part singing from notation with some accuracy. A mile or two from Melchester, there was a restored village church to which Jude had originally gone to fix the new columns and capitals. By this means, he had become acquainted with the organist, and the ultimate result was that he joined the choir as a bass voice. Well, this is great. He can sing in the church choir, and he can study for the priesthood, and it really sounds like Jude has his life right back on track. Sure, there's an internal warfare between, what is it, flesh and spirit, but, you know, he's doing all the right things, and I really feel like, I know I've said this before, but I really feel like Jude has turned the corner, and now everything is going to work out great. He walked out to this parish twice every Sunday, and sometimes in the week. One evening about Easter, the choir met for practice, and a new hymn, which Jude had heard of as being by a Wessex composer, was to be tried and prepared for the following week. It turned out to be a strangely emotional composition. As they all sang it over and over again, its harmonies grew upon Jude and moved him exceedingly. When they had finished, he went round to the organist to make inquiries. The score was in manuscript, the name of the composer being at the head, together with the title of the hymn, The Foot of the Cross. Yes, said the organist, he is a local man. He is a professional musician at Kennet Bridge, between here and Christminster. The vicar knows him. He was brought up and educated in Christminster traditions, which accounts for the quality of the piece. I think he plays in the large church there and has a surplused choir. He comes to Melchester sometimes and once tried to get the cathedral organ when the post was vacant. The hymn is getting about everywhere this Easter. Well, people just love this hymn, The Foot of the Cross. Are you allowed to make requests at church? I don't think so. It seems like the priest is the one who just decides on all the hymns, but it seems like it'd be nice if you could just tip him a fiver, you know, and make a request, you know, just, you know, before, before the service, just be like, you know what, father, I'd love to hear the foot of the cross. If you could just throw that on, you know, I'd really love to hear it. I just love the, the emotional harmonies. The fellas from Wessex plays in Christminster. If he could just throw on the foot of the cross, I know we'd all get a kick out of it. As he walked humming the air on his way home, Jude fell to musing on its composer and the reasons why he composed it. What a man of sympathies he must be. 
Perplexed and harassed as he himself was about Sue and Arabella, and troubled as was his conscience by the complication of his position, how he would like to know that man. He of all men would understand my difficulties, said the impulsive Jude. If there were any person in the world to choose as a confidant, this composer would be the one, for he must have suffered and throbbed and yearned. Well, Jude, you don't sound psychotic at all right now. You don't at all sound like somebody who's going to go to you know, a celebrity's house and stand outside the gates and wait for that person to, to come out and say, I know we would be best friends if only we could spend some time together. You get me in a way that nobody else gets me. You speak to me through your movies, Billy Bob Thornton. You just, you understand me. Nobody, you have throbbed and yearned, Billy Bob, in a way that nobody else has. I was trying to talk like Billy Bob Thornton in the shower this morning. You ever do that? You know? You're just, you're trying to imitate somebody in the shower or sing like them in the shower. I, I could, I didn't get very far. Well, he does. He has kind of a flat voice. Is this really the way you want it to go down, Lester? Is this really what you want? That well, wasn't bad. I mean, it doesn't sound anything like him, but in my head, I can hear it. In brief, ill as he could afford the time and money for the journey, foully resolved, like the child that he was, to go, or foul, folly, uh, folly, resolve. I remember last episode, we were talking about how I'm not sure I got the pronunciation of this correct at all. Like the child that he was to go to Kennetbridge the very next Sunday. He duly started early in the morning, for it was only by a series of crooked railways that he could get to the town. About midday he reached it, and crossing the bridge into the quaint old borough, he inquired for the house of the composer. They told him it was a red brick building some little way further on, also that the gentleman himself had just passed along the street not five minutes before. Which way? asked Jude with alacrity. Straight along homeward from church. Jude hastened on and soon had the pleasure of observing a man in a black coat and a black slouched felt hat no considerable distance ahead. Stretching out his legs yet more widely he stalked after. A hungry soul in pursuit of a full soul, he said, I must speak to that man. He could not, however, overtake the musician before he had entered his own house, and then arose the question if this were an expedient time to call. Oh, you wet noodle. You, you just followed the guy down the street. He goes into his house. Just knock on the door. God, you're so desperate to meet this guy. Just be a full stalker. Don't stand outside the house like an idiot. Just go. You know he's there. Just go up and knock and, and tell him what you need to tell him. <sighs> Whether or not he decided to do so there and then, now that he had gone here, the distance home being too great for him to wait till late in the afternoon, this man of soul would understand scant ceremony and might be quite a perfect advisor in a case in which an earthly and illegitimate passion had cunningly obtained entrance into his heart through the opening afforded for religion. Oh, that's interesting. So Jude is saying... Or this is what he's telling himself, more lies, damnable lies, that the passion that he has in his heart, his heart that he opened up for religion, 
instead has been corrupted like a virus, a virus of love and illegitimate passion has entered that hole, entered that little space that he had opened up for God and infected him with carnal wantings. And maybe this man alone would understand that Jude accordingly rang the bell and was admitted. The musician came to him in a moment, and being respectably dressed, good-looking, and frank in manner, Jude obtained a favorable reception. He was nevertheless conscious that there would be a certain awkwardness in explaining his errand. Yeah, I come for the rug. Hey, man, what rug? This is my rug, man. You got the wrong guy. That's from the Big Lebowski. I did great. I did great just now. I have been singing in the choir of a little church near Melchester, he said, and we have this week practiced the foot of the cross, which I understand, sir, that you composed. I did a year or so ago. I like it. I think it's supremely beautiful. Ah, well, other people have said so, too. Yes, there's money in it, if I could only see about getting it published. I have other compositions to go with it, too. I wish I could bring them out, for I haven't made a five-pound note out of any of them yet. These publishing people, they want the copyright of an obscure composer's work such as mine is, for almost less than I should have to pay a person for making a fair manuscript copy of this score. The one you speak of I have led to various friends about here in Melchester, and so it has got to be sung a little. But music is a poor staff to lean on. I'm giving it up entirely. You must go into trade if you want to make money nowadays. The wine business is what I'm thinking of. This is my forthcoming list. It is not issued yet, but you can take one. He handed Jude an advertisement list of several pages in booklet shape, ornamentally margined with a red line in which were set forth the various clarets, champagnes, port cherries, and other wines with which we proposed to initiate his new venture. It took Jude more than by surprise that the man with the soul was thus and thus, and he felt that he could not open up his confidences. They talked a little longer, but constrainedly, for when the musician found that Jude was a poor man, his manner changed from what it had been, while Jude's appearance and address deceived him as to his position and pursuits. Jude stammered out something about his feelings in wishing to congratulate the author on such an exalted composition and took an embarrassed leave. I mean, this is classic. When you meet somebody you admire, you know, because of their art, their craft, their skill at doing whatever. And you feel that they have touched you in some place, in some capacity, and that they must know you because they, because you recognize in them some familiar sensation, which you feel upon observing their work. And so you meet that person because you're that psycho who stands outside their house. And then they come out and they're like, oh, come on in. You look nice. And then it turns out, you know, the person's constipated or got a dog hair from a shitty little rat dog all over his sweater or what have you. And you realize, oh, this is just some person. This is just some person no better than me. And why did I come to you if you're no better than me? What's the point? You, you, can't, you can't fix my problems. You 
who has such talent in doing whatever it is that you do. So what, what am I doing here? And that's the problem. That's the problem with meeting your heroes. They turn out to just be, to just be people. I mean, it's, it's that old story. Thomas Hardy is recognizing this in 1895, but we, see, we hear about it all the time. Celebrities, they're just like us. Can you believe Miley Cyrus was at Whole Foods? Look at this picture of Miley Cyrus. She's at Whole Foods. Can you believe Billy Bob Thornton wears a vial of Angelina Jolie's blood around his neck just like I do? Celebrities, they're just like us. All right, let's take a break, shall we? Back in a moment on Obscure. You're listening to Obscure. Back to the book. All the way home by the slow Sunday train, sitting in the fireless waiting rooms on this cold spring day, he was depressed enough at his simplicity in taking such a journey. But no sooner did he reach his Melchester lodging than he found, uh uh-oh, he found awaiting him a letter. These letters are never good. Which had arrived that morning a few minutes after he had left the house. It was a contrite little note from Sue. (laughs) Just, I mean, here we go. Back and forth and forth and back. In which she said, with sweet humility, that she felt she had been horrid in telling him he was not to come to see her. That blah, blah, blah. She despised herself for having been so conventional. Here we go. And that he was to be sure to come by the 1145 train that very Sunday and have dinner with them at half past one. God, you're exhausting, Sue Bridehead. Just friggin' let him live his life. Jude almost tore his hair at having missed this letter till it was too late to act upon its contents. No, be glad. But he had chastened himself considerably of late, and at last his chimerical, chimerical or chimerical, expedition to Kennetbridge really did seem to have been another special intervention of providence to keep him away from temptation. But a growing impatience of faith, which he had noticed in himself more than once of late, made him pass over in ridicule the idea that God sent people on fool's errands. He's growing impatience with faith, and he has been his entire life after basically he met Arabella. Basically, as soon as she threw the pig dick at him, that was the end of faith for Jude. That was really the beginning of the end for him. As soon as he was smacked in the face with the meat of life, he abandoned in some small measure and eventually in large measure his commitment to his faith. It turned on a dime, you know, that hole that he had that was probably put there for, you know, his parents died, he was lonely. He was living with his aunt who didn't love him. He was doing nothing right. He met this teacher who was going to study divinity. He adored the teacher. The hole that he was trying to fill was a hole uh, that could only be filled by love. And he mistook religion for love. Now, I'm not saying that God isn't love, etc. This is not a condemnation of that popular notion. But what I am saying is Jude's faith, and here I'm using the kind of generalized term of faith, was misplaced from the very beginning. He thought 
his faith was in his own morality. He thought the faith what was what was to be placed in education and of bettering himself and becoming a man of letters and a man of the world. And in that way, he could mend his heart by being somebody. But in fact, the hole in his heart that was misplaced was was really it just could only be filled by the love again of a good woman or, you know, in some sense, a parent just love. You know, that's what he needed more than anything else. But he's torn because he doesn't know how to go about getting it. And the first the first chick who looked at him, you know, he threw away his entire life for her. Because that was his life. His whole life was just about filling that void left by the death of his parents. I mean, it's Batman, right? It's Batman. It's not Batman, except that Batman's parents died. But it's Coen Brothers, except it's not really Coen's Brothers. He longed to see her. He was angry at having missed her, and he wrote instantly, of course he did, telling her what had happened and saying he had not had he had had not enough patience to wait till the following Sunday, but would come any day in the week that she liked to name. Since he wrote a little over ardently, Sue, as her manner was, delayed her reply till Thursday before Good Friday, when she said he might come that afternoon if he wished, this being the earliest day on which she could welcome him, for she was now assistant teacher in her husband's school. Jude, therefore, got leave from the cathedral works at the trifling expense of stoppage of pay and went. Well, of course he went. And thus ends the third part. It's lovely in a way. I'm going to choose to look at it as a kind of loveliness that the light that burns so bright in Jude's heart, and it is a light, it shines on everything to which he turns his attention and has become so refracted in the presence of, of those upon whom he shines his light. But refracted light can take on the loveliest of hues. Can it not? Can it not, people? In uh, the Coen Brothers' first movie, what's it called? Blood Simple. There's that famous scene where, the, I don't remember much, but I remember this. The main dude is being shot at and he's behind a door and it's dark and the bullets from outside pierce the door and cause light to spill in. And so you see bullet by bullet by bullet, these, these, this light pour into this hiding spot. And that's kind of what Jude is. Jude is kind of shooting light. I'm going to say at himself, you know, and, and shooting these bullets of light and all it's doing is bringing harm, but it's a lovely shot in blood. Simple. There is loveliness in light, no matter the nature of that light. Right. I mean, when you see, the ugliness of life. And there is ugliness to be found everywhere we look. But there's also, there's loveliness. When I drive to the mall, and you know I love to spend time at the mall, they got Chipotle there. And I, I do like Chipotle. There's, a, uh, there's an intersection 
there, just as you're leaving the mall, where there's this old kind of ruined building and there's a big sign on it and says, hey, you can develop this space and you can put anything here. You could put a gym here. You could put a daycare center here. And there's a there's a gravel and ex- excavating yard kind of right behind there. And there's there's the concrete pilings and 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 bricks. And it's just a, it's just a ruin where this intersection is, this building. And it's my favorite thing, this ugly, old, decrepit building with the vines crawling up and no signs of actual human activity remaining. But there was some bustle there at some point. This had been some commercial firm at some point. And now it's just a hollowed out shell. And it's ugly, but it's lovely. It's my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing on the drive to the mall. I like it even better than the place where it's called Captain's Pizza. And I'll never go there because the, because the logo is just a, a ship, uh, like a steering wheel on a ship, whatever you call that. And there is nothing ship-like or naval to me about pizza. And I am so offended by this notion that I can never go there because I cannot tie together the ideas of pizza and the sea. So I can't go to that pizza place ever, but I like seeing it and thinking about why they chose that particular nautical imagery for the pizza place. I like it even better than, than, than that, but you can't see it in the dark. You need the light to illuminate all of its banality and hideousness and ruin. And you can find beauty there. And so Jude is giving off this light and it's getting turned every which way. But we're finding loveliness in it, in his suffering. He suffers so we don't have to. Thank you, Jude, for taking on the suffering so that you and I can eat pretzels late at night contentedly until the following morning when we hate ourselves. So next time we'll start the fourth part. I don't know how many parts there are. For some reason in my head, I just keep imagining there's five, but maybe there's six, seven, or eight. I don't know. Maybe it's endless like Star Wars. I'm excited to see what happens, uh, even though we know it will be bad. But, you know, just like I'm excited for the next Coen Brothers movie. You know, there's no country for old men. You know, this is no country for people like me. Old, old men. Older even even than Phillotson. And we take our comforts where we can find them. In this case in the scintillating tale of Jude the Obscure. Until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. Uh-huh. 
This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Raisa Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hold on, Spanish Aki Presents.